You may be seated. you in on a little pastoral secret. On emotional days, the best thing you can do is cry during the hymns. (laughs) And then you can compose yourself for the moments later. It is a joy to celebrate baptism and to do so here at North Holland this morning. But as we do so, we continue to follow the one in whom we are baptized with. And so I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And that'll be our primary text this morning, um, but we'll also be reading Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Here at North Holland, we have been following the lectionary through the Gospel of Mark and following Jesus through his life and ministry. And now, at this point, Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem, and there's a parable that he tells in Mark chapter 12. And It's a parable that makes the most sense when we know what Jesus is referencing, which the words that he uses, the language he uses to describe, is found in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So to make sense of the parable and to hear it the way that those who are hearing Jesus speak would have heard it, we'll be looking at both texts this morning. First, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. And then we'll spend most of our time in Mark chapter 12. But before we do so, let's pray. O Lord our God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord our rock and our redeemer. Send your Holy Spirit upon us anew, afresh, fully and abundantly this day that your word may be illumined to us. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And now hear these words of Jesus from Mark chapter 12. 
Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To be a chosen one and to be part of a chosen people is a beautiful and special and magnificent thing to ponder. To be a chosen one, called by God, should bring us to awe and humility when we approach God and when we hold that concept and that promise in our hearts. To be a chosen one. But to be a chosen one is also a very dangerous concept. Because it can be misunderstood and it can be abused, especially when approached with humility or entitlement. To be a chosen one, particularly chosen by God, in no way means a license to do whatever we want. But to be a chosen one, to be called by God, is to be blessed to be a blessing to others. Not a license to do whatever you want, but to be chosen and called by God in all of those special and wonderful and magnificent ways, but called for the purpose of being Christ's ambassadors to the world, to be God's people, called to serve the world. So when we consider that we are God's chosen ones, when we remember the promises of baptism, we ought to do so with awe and humility, and not with over-familiarity or entitlement or arrogance. In Jesus' not-so-cryptic parable in Mark 12, he's referencing this familiar song of the vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. Now, Pastor Dustin, over a month ago, preached about a few different parables and rightfully so reminded us that parables can be multivalent There's layers of meaning. There's different things happening. And God is at work in multiple ways. 
And then the disciples, even, don't even understand the parables until they're explained to them. And the crowds often don't understand what Jesus is saying. But today, in Jerusalem, Jesus says this parable of the wicked tenants, which I don't think was meant to be a text to be preached on for your daughter's baptism day. But when Jesus shares the parable of the tenants, there's nothing masked about it. Nothing that's meant to be overly cryptic or hard to figure out. Because this time, he's calling people out. And he's doing so with language that they know. With language that's familiar. That resonates from what they know from the scriptures. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, this song of the vineyard tells us at the end that the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. That's who they are. And yet, this vineyard did not produce the fruit that it was meant to produce. A vineyard is planted for a purpose. A field is planted for a purpose, for a bountiful harvest. And the harvest is meant to be shared. But in Isaiah 5, the vineyard that was loved, the vineyard that was chosen and cared for, did not produce the fruit that was intended. When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? God's chosen people, nations of Israel and Judah, were cultivated by God and instructed by his law. And yet, their vineyard did not produce the fruit that God intended. It did not produce the fruit that the law and the instruction were meant to bring about. What should have been a window into the kingdom of God a kingdom of righteousness and justice, of peace and shalom. Instead, he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, says verse 7, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. The vineyard in Isaiah 5 did not yield the fruit it was meant for, and so the Lord Almighty says that he will take away the hedge and the vineyard will be destroyed. For the Pharisees, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they know Isaiah 5, but they also only believe that it's in the past tense. For them to hear Isaiah 5, what they hear Isaiah preaching about is the exile, when Babylon and Assyria took Judah and Israel into captivity, and the nations were overturned and taken out of their homelands. That is how they would read Isaiah chapter 5. And in Jesus' day, the exile is over. They're back in Jerusalem. And so they would say, the vineyard has been replanted. There's no more consequence to worry about. We're here again. And so everything Isaiah was talking about, that's already happened. That's behind us. We don't have to worry about these kind of consequences happening again. Because we are God's chosen people. But it's a misunderstanding of what it means to be God's chosen people. A vineyard does not exist just for its own glory. It exists for a harvest that can be shared. And so in Jesus' not-so-cryptic parable, he's warning the religious people that this could happen again because they've taken being God's chosen ones as a sense of entitlement. And that's never what it was meant to be. That's not what it's meant to be today. No people group gets a pass, and we say, well, they're God's chosen ones, so they can do whatever they want. It's simply not true. It wasn't true for Israel in the Old Testament. It's not true for Israel today. 
it's not a license to do whatever you want. It is a license to live according to how God called you to live. And in so doing, to demonstrate what the kingdom of God was meant to look like. That's what it was meant for then, today, and in the future. It was never meant to be a blanket license. That's when we approach our identity as people of God with arrogance and entitlement. But one of the things that we remember and that Jesus teaches us in the parable of the tenants is that the vineyard never belonged to the tenants. They are called to be stewards of the vineyard, but the vineyard and the fruit does not belong to them. In a similar way, our identity in Christ as his called people has been given to us as a gift, and we are to steward these great gifts. But they're not things that we're entitled to, nor that we earned, nor that we even deserve, and that's the beauty of grace. The chosen one, the chosen nation of Israel did not yield the fruit that it was meant to yield. The vineyard in Isaiah 5 didn't yield its fruit. And Jesus is pointing a finger more directly this time and making it personal and telling them that this is about the people. This is about the tenants who were entrusted to the vineyard, but it will be taken away from them and given to others instead. Isaiah asks the question, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Throughout between Isaiah and Jesus' time, many prophets were sent to Israel to try to correct them, to bring them back, to show them this is how you were meant to live. This is the calling to which I have called you to. But they turned away again and again. The prophets had varying amounts of effectiveness in bringing the people back. And when they were effective, it was only for a short time. And the question in Isaiah echoes forward into the future. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Jesus picks up that echo in Mark chapter 12 by describing how servant after servant has been sent to the vineyard to try to collect some of the fruit that rightfully belongs to the master. Because this isn't, a, this isn't a cash rent agreement that has been made. The tenants of the vineyard don't pay a rent check and whatever they get is theirs. All of the fruit that the tenants, the stewards of the vineyard raise, belongs to the master. And so when the master sends a servant to the vineyard to collect some of the vineyard's fruit, they take the servant, they beat him and send him away empty-handed, echoing the life of many of the prophets. He sends another and still another. Some they beat, others they killed. When we hear this parable, this not-so-cryptic parable, don't you almost get frustrated that from the get-go, the master doesn't just pull out all the stops and march on that vineyard after the first servant was treated shamefully? Why didn't he just march in there and straighten things out right from the get-go? But when we have that reaction, bear in mind what we're upset about is the patience of God, which is something we all desperately need. One after another, the servants were sent. 
just as God calls us again and again in his infinite patience. The servants, some are killed. Others are beaten or shamed and sent away. Prophet after prophet, thinking of your own life when you knew God was calling you to something and he just kept pushing it in front of you time and time again until eventually you just have to say yes to what God is calling you to. And so it is at the parable of the tenants. Except they don't respond. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Jesus picks up that echo from Isaiah 5, most clearly in Mark chapter 12, verse 6. He, the master, had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. After all of the prophets and servants were sent to Israel, God has one left to send. God can pull out all the stops now and send them his son, his only son whom he loved. The same words that are said over Isaac when Abraham is called by God to sacrifice his son. Take your son, your only son whom you love. And now God is sending his son, his only son, whom he loves. And who is he sending them to? The wicked tenants of the vineyard. Religious people. He sends his son to them. When Jesus says this, we almost know this isn't going to end well, right? It's not a bargaining tactic that he's gradually upping the ante. If they haven't respected the servants, they won't respect the son. And in fact, they decide, no, here comes the heir. Let's take him and kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Because they still don't understand that the inheritance was always a gift and it was never given over to them. They were stewards, not kings. We are stewards of God's grace, but not entitled people to it. So the son is sent. And in the parable, the son is taken and killed. And Jesus, in the city of Jerusalem, in a not-so-cryptic way foreshadows that the son of the master will be taken by the tenants and he will be killed. After the killing of the son, then all the stops are pulled out. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And if you catch yourself thinking he should have done that earlier, remember, this is the patience of God for which we should be immeasurably grateful. But the son was sent. And then Jesus shifts from vineyards of Isaiah 5 to a random verse from Psalm 118. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus shifts metaphors. We've been thinking about the vineyard, and Jesus has been calling out the religious leaders 
telling them that they are the wicked tenants who have not responded. And if ever we think, oh, those silly Pharisees, just remember, this parable was meant for religious people who have maybe become too comfortable with their own identity, with thinking they're entitled to the grace and ownership of God, that their identity as God's chosen ones is just a given, and forgetting that it is a gift, a gift that we cannot lose or forsake, but a gift nonetheless, which we are stewards of. Jesus shifts from an analogy about bad grapes of the one who looked for justice and righteousness, the signs of the kingdom, the signs of shalom, and instead saw bloodshed and cries of distress. And now he shifts to a construction analogy taken from Psalm 118 of this cornerstone. Now, I myself am a little bit more on the agricultural analogies than the construction ones, but you know, a couple summers worked out okay. But the cornerstone... The cornerstone of the building determines everything about it. Wherever the cornerstone is set and however it is set, everything must align itself with the cornerstone. There is no option of, well, that's where the cornerstone is, but you know, we like this wall a little bit over to this side, or maybe it's a little bit too close to this street. We should pull it in a little bit. That's not the option that's given. When the cornerstone is set, the house must be built according to the cornerstone. And Christ is our cornerstone. And so our lives and our church is to be aligned with Christ as the cornerstone and the dimensions that he has set for us. Why would you ever stray from the cornerstone? Maybe you decide that If you continue building along the path of the cornerstone, it'll get too close to this street or that street. Maybe in our own times today, we think, you know, some of the things that Jesus says are a little bit harsh. I mean, Jesus holds really high standards of righteousness. Some of those things don't go over so well. We should move the wall in just a little bit. But that's not an option with the cornerstone. If we think it'd be a little bit softer if we could just move the wall in. It must be aligned with the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected, the son who was killed. Everything must be lined with him. Or maybe we think, you know what, this wall goes a little bit too far this way. Jesus talks a lot about how we care for the poor and the vulnerable among us. Well, that sounds a little bit too liberal for us. Maybe we need to move this wall in just a little bit. But once again, it's not an option. If it's what Jesus taught, if it's how he aligned our lives, then we must be built the way we were intended. The cornerstone has been set. How great to think that we as the church are really just a bunch of jagged rocks with rough edges. And yet, God has called us and said, I can use you. I can take you and build you along the scope of the cornerstone and build you into a great house because Christ alone is the head of the church. And Christ takes us, each one of us here individually, and builds us along the cornerstone, shaping and crafting us, accepting our rough edges and building us into the body anyway. And it is marvelous in our eyes. In the same way, 
we here at North Holland are one church, one building block among many that are built into the kingdom of God. We think about the churches in our area. We think about the churches throughout the world. We're all just a bunch of rocks with our weaknesses, our frailties, our rough edges. But we are people who have been given, called and chosen to be built along the cornerstone who is Christ the Lord. Christ was rejected by many, and so just as the vineyard will be taken away and it will be offered to someone else, to think that Israel and Judah, those chosen vines, that loved vineyard, the grace of God has been given to us and to all who will align themselves with the cornerstone, who is Christ the Lord. Our identity as people of God sealed in baptism with the promises of God, reminding us always that we have been grafted into Christ who is the vine, that we as humble bricks have been built into Christ's body, the church, aligned with Christ who is the cornerstone. This is a great and marvelous gift that has been given to us. And it is our identity, an identity that we are stewards of, until Christ calls us home. There's a phrase that I want us, I mentioned it last week, but I want us to spend just a little bit more time on it today as we think about what it means to be chosen by God, called by God, grafted into the vine, built into the house, baptized into our Lord. Say this with me. I am a beloved child of God. I am a beloved child of God. One more time to let it sink in. I am a beloved child of God. That identity has been given to us as a gift. As a Lenten practice, or at any time in the year, that phrase can be used as a prayer. And one of the ways that spiritual directors use it is in this, is in using a different emphasis for every word through the sentence. And it reminds us of a different truth that has been offered to us and taught to us in the word. Starting with just, I am a child of God, beloved child of God. I, not just other people, not just them, not just those people who I think are better than me, but I am a beloved child of God. And I am a beloved child of God. Not I will earn my way into being a child of God. Not I can prove myself worthy of being a beloved child of God. Right now, I am a beloved child of God. And I am a beloved child of God. One of many. We're not, you're not the only chosen one. Just like we're not the only church. I am a beloved child of God, working together with all the other parts of the body, working with all of our brothers and sisters. When I think about Adriana's baptism, I remember that she is a child of God that will be surrounded by all these other children of God who will encourage her and teach her along the way. And I am a beloved child of God, not merely accepted, not a mediocre child of God. You are a beloved child of God. 
The cross reminds us of Christ's great love that was poured out for us once and for all. The proof is in the cross that we are Christ's beloved, for he died for us. I am a beloved child of God. When we're adults, we may think we're self-sufficient, we may think we're oh so smart, that we have it all figured out. But we need to remember, too, that we are just children. Children in our understanding when we consider the mysteries and wonders of God. Children that ought to be naturally curious. Children who enjoy imitating their parents. We, as beloved children of God, ought to try to imitate our Lord and Savior. I am a beloved child, a curious, dependent, loving, and imitating child. And I am a beloved child of God. Of, not of ourself, not just on our own. But as the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one reminds us, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not our own, but we are a beloved children of God. I am a beloved child of God. God himself, the master, the one who sent his son, has called us to be his children. To be a chosen one of God is such a privilege. And with that privilege comes the call to be responsible stewards of the gifts when we consider the grace that God has shown us, how might we share that grace with those around us? When we remember the love that God has poured out for us, how do we pour out our love for our neighbors, for our communities, for our world? When we consider the hospitality by which God welcomes us into his presence, how might we mirror that hospitality to the world? We are beloved children of God. There's only one last thing. When Jesus tells this parable, basically saying, I know that you've rejected the prophets. I know you'll reject me. I know that you will take me to the cross and kill me. He says this, and it it gets the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders pretty mad. But then we're told that they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. I hope today, and pray on my daughter's baptism day that she will never be afraid of the crowd when it comes to doing the right thing, when it comes to the choice of aligning her life with Christ who is the cornerstone or not. I hope it's not fear of the crowd that pushes her away. And in the same way, when I look out at all of you at North Holland and many family members who have come to be with us today, I remember that there is such a great cloud of witnesses that is Christ the church. And I hope for the children of our church, and we're all children, as they are raised, that they are part of a crowd that will encourage them and support them and love them as they seek to imitate Christ their Lord, who is their cornerstone. That they may not be afraid of any other crowd, but that they may be encouraged by this crowd.
by this group of beloved children of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Christ, you call us to this place weekly to remember who you are and your love for us. Lord, you have planted a vineyard that you love, and you call it to yield good fruit. You have laid the cornerstone by which all things should be built in measure according to it. By your word, by your Holy Spirit's leading and guidance, and by the great cloud of witnesses that we are surrounded by, May we always be able to do so. May we imitate you, and may we remember with humility and reverence that we are chosen and called by you, called as your children. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. At this time, our deacons will come forward and collect the morning's tithes and offerings, and there will be a special music song as we go. So.